On a special Thanksgiving Day edition of The World Over, I recently went to the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, to discuss the wise men who found Christmas. It was a wonderful event. We'll take you there. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome and a happy Thanksgiving to everyone here in the United States and the world over. Later, I'll tell you what I'm grateful for this year. But if you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's get started. The bishops of Germany were in Rome last week for their ad limina visits with Pope Francis in what's been reported to be a frank discussion with Vatican officials, a proposal to halt the contentious synodal way in Germany was presented by the Holy See. It was rejected by the German bishops. The synodal path, which began in 2019 to respond to the clerical sex abuse crisis in Germany, had a few goals to give lay people more prominent roles in church leadership, to ordain women priests, and to bless same-sex unions. The German bishops have ignored at least two Vatican warnings about the direction of their local synodal path. Pope Francis met in private with the German bishops for two hours on Friday, but no public address was released from the meeting. President of the German bishops' conference, Bishop Georg Betzing, had this to say. The audience with Pope Francis encouraged us. Here, too, the different positions within the bishops' conference were presented. The Holy Father made it clear to us that tension is necessary. He also spoke of tension he experiences and that fact that courage and patience are needed to find a solution. We will continue to monitor this story as it develops in the weeks ahead. As you know, I've been on tour all over the country talking about my new book for families, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. I recently made a stop at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley. I sat down with the executive director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation, John Highbush, to discuss the book and the real wise men who found Christmas. We had a great conversation. Here are some highlights. Raymond, okay, here's one of my favorite passages from the Bible, Matthew okay. 28, 18 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Mm. I wonder, when you write books like this, do you see yourself spreading the word, as it were, in the modern day? Well, I, I'll tell you, my first obligation when I start any project is, who am I writing it for? and I try to write for a particular audience. And I always ask myself before I start, because there are lots of ideas that come to me, and I just, there's no audience for those works, or I don't see it yet, or I haven't figured the story out. So my first obligation is to entertain my audience, and I write with them in mind. Um, certainly, in the dark times that we find ourselves in, and I have been asked to write any number of books about politics, uh, the other religious figures I won't mention, um, lots of people that, frankly, I consider a drag. I don't need to contribute to the darkness of the world. I'm trying to bring something with hope, and I hope some inspiration. And for me, when I started 
researching this story because I wrote a book a few years ago called The Spider Who Saved Christmas, which is just an old Eastern European legend. I dug it out. I refashioned it. You were kind enough to have me here then. Um, so that was kind of a legend that I think casts new light on one of the cracks in the gospel. It's kind of a quiet moment that we just don't know what happened between the, the child being born in Bethlehem and then the flight to Egypt. What happened in between there? That story kind of illuminates what might have happened. But in the case of the wise men, when I started researching them, John, everything I imagined I knew was wrong. It historically did not line up. Um, how many wise men do you think there were? Three? No. Gospels mentions three gifts, not three wise men. Gospel is silent on the number of wise men. So right there I went, wait a minute, I thought there were three of these guys. Well, there were cop there are Coptic manuscripts that say there were 60 wise men. The Syrians and Armenian, those churches believe there were 12 wise men. So I kind of split the difference. I have 12 in the opening spread of this with three leads that you care about. Um, so I, you, when you dig in, you realize, you mentioned it in the intro, um, it's important that we reconnect to the reality of what this was about. And I thought if gospel, the Gospel of Matthew begins with these wise men, there had to be a reason that he's the only gospel that starts with it. The wise men don't appear in any other gospel, just Matthew. Why? Why are they there? What are they meant to convey? And who were they? Were they historic? So those were the questions I began with, and it took me eight months to kind of unravel who they were, what they meant, and then once I saw it all, I said, oh, this is an adventure story. This is a buddy film. <laughs> but, and, and it's high stakes, and it's dangerous, and they're taking their lives into their hands, and they're pursuing truth recklessly in some cases. Um, and I think that relates to all of us. It's a pursuit of truth no matter where it leads. That's the lesson of the wise men. But I originally was going to write this as a chapter book, and as I did that, I said, but I'm cutting the audience down. The families gather around this story every year. I want to open it up to 104-year-olds and 4-year-olds. So how do I do that? Picture book. <laughs> that was it. <clears throat> so that's how we came up with this platform to convey what is actually a very complex and fascinating story to me. Is it that, you know, the, the average person, um, main, you know, we three kings of Orient are. Right. I wonder, is it because this tale is, in particular, is caught up with all these fictional elements that you thought you should go after this? Well, I, I thought I was going to write a story about three kings from three yeah. different kingdoms who went to see the Christ child and brought him gold and frankincense and myrrh, right? <laughs> we three kings of Orient are, we all know the song. Turns out the song is completely wrong. <laughs> there are not three, they were not kings, and they did not come from the Far East. They are from the Orient, but what does Orient mean? East. The immediate East. When you, when you read Clement of Rome and um, Justin Martyr, first century, they all say the wise men came from Arabia. Hmm. What was the capital of Arabia at the time? Current day Petra, the kingdom of Nabate. Well, I'm already hooked. I thought, oh God, the kingdom of Nabate. I love it. Let's go. Where's Nabate? Who are these people? So when you start digging, 
it all kind of falls into place. And then once I understood the political ramifications, I said, then I, I realized it was an adventure. And um, there are dangerous turns. Uh, there may have been a religious com compulsion on the part of these wise men, these magi. We can discuss that in a little bit. Uh, I don't think they just went to bring gifts to a child. There's something far more profound happening here. And once I figured that out, I had to kind of, I, all I want to do with this is tell a fascinating fun tale for the family that opens up the possibilities of who these guys were. Look, some of this is theoretical, and I'll be very honest with the things I think are theoretical. But what's historic, we have to mark and set so people understand where they came from, why they were going to this child, and what they meant to accomplish. And um, I just think it, it speaks to all of our lives. As I, as I pull back from the story, John, I thought, we don't pursue God so much as God pursues us. And that's what happens with these wise men. It's through their natural passions. It's through their natural desires, the things that fascinated them, the stars and the prophecies. It's through those things that he reached them and moved them to action. We're all called in the same way right now. We're all called through the things we love, the things we're naturally drawn to, the things our heart rests on. He, he pursue, pursues you through those. And I love the allegory of the star, which is there. They follow the star, and then it goes out. Then they're in the darkness, and they have to go on faith through much of the journey. And then way down the path, they reach Bethlehem, and the star reappears. What was it? What did they see? All of that we can speculate on forever. There's a thousand theories. The most important thing is they had their eyes always looking up. They were beyond the things of the world, the earthly things. They were looking for the unseen. A little product placement scene, an unseen there, but they're, they're looking, they're always looking for the unseen. And you do, we have to keep our gaze on the higher things because otherwise these lower things will drag you down and destroy you. And you'll miss your calling. <laughs> I knew you would bring, he always brings these tales alive. I, it's just, uh, sweet, thank you. You talk about this book being a book for family, mm -hmm. a book for children. Christmas is a time for children. Is that why you chose to speak through the animals that were, you know, that, I mean, an, an animal is narrating this book. Don't give away spoilers, John. <laughs> That's the big reveal I didn't in the say, last spread. You're already telling the whole book. That's like saying who did it on the Nile. No, we don't want to know. Let Perot figure it out. <laughs> now, I didn't say I, which I, animals. I, yes. Uh, but, but children love it when they, animals they, well, talk. Look, right? I'm trying to, when, when I write, someone, an editor friend of mine gave me a, a quote years ago, and she said, you know, when you write, you really write like L. Frank Baum. L. Frank Baum wrote The Wizard of Oz. And I said, why do you say that? I, I don't write about lions or tin men. She, she said, no, L. Frank Baum said, I write for the young and the young at heart. And I do write for the young and the young at heart. I'm writing for a couple of audiences here, the child today and that child when he's grown. And I figured that out when I became a parent because as you parents get misty-eyed thinking about it, the stories of childhood particularly 
when you return to them as a grown-up child. Now I'm going to cry. When I read Peter Pan to my, to my kids, um, I wept through the whole end of the book. Every time I read it, I wept to them. And I'm like, and I, I kept asking myself, why are you getting so emotional about this book? Well, my mother read Peter Pan to me. She took me to see Sandy Duncan in the production when it came me to too. the Sanger Theater. Me too, um, me too. And, and there's a very sweet memory I have of, and again, it's all of this. Book stories, good stories, they capture not only a piece of our heart when we're young, but they gather up memories of that time and they hold them. And when you go to them again, they're reopened. And that's the beauty of holidays and Christmas and Christmas stories. So I take all of this very seriously when I write it. Yeah. And I'm writing yeah. for different levels. People, there are going to be people who connect with Melchior, who has a side ailment and is still, despite his infirmity, is racing toward the light. And his line throughout the book is, we have to follow the light. But we have to follow the light. And, and the other guys think he's out of his mind. But... That's what his calling is. He won't let it go. Um, and and I, I just think it's important to reach the entire family if you're writing for them. And I am. I'm writing for multiple levels. And I love that families share these books with each other because mama and grandma will have a different take that they can share with the child. And that child often has a very different take that opens up and broadens the story we think we're receiving and you see it anew through their eyes. That's the beauty of writing for, they say children. I write family reads. I don't write for children. I write for little kids and bigger kids. Wiser kids. <laughs> I won't grow up. I won't, well, I, you will grow up, but hopefully you won't lose the kid. <laughs> yeah. You know, like my friend Jerry Lewis, he used to always say, uh, you know, Jerry, I, I would say, Jerry, how old are you inside? He said, I'm about five. <laughs> ah! But there was that kid inside of him that he kind of kept alive. We have to keep that child alive. We should keep that child alive. And, I, and, and through wonder and a sense of awe and that I tried to weave in. And I got to tell you, the whole reason, if you really want to know the reason I wanted to do it as a picture book, it's this one spread. It's this one. And it's the first time you'll see the wise men on Arabian horses racing through the desert. I just loved this idea. Arabian horses were introduced about 100 years before Christ in this kingdom of Nabatee. There's a good reason they raised Arabians. But they would have ridden Arabians, not camels. Camels were for heavy packing and, and moving you know, big articles of trade. If you needed to get somewhere fast, you took the Maserati of the day. <laughs> so I just love that they're all on horseback. So it's kind of a, it's, it's just, it gives it a sense of urgency and life and zest that the solemn procession of the kings and the columpy camels never appealed to me. I did never like that story, I have to tell you. <laughs> and I always wondered, well, who are these guys? Well, the, the, these merchants of trade, and as well at the time, I, you know, yeah. when, you, when I was a child and, was introduced to the story and you hear this gold and frankincense right. and myrrh. What are these things? We, all, we know what gold is. And yeah. What is myrrh? What is myrrh? Do you know? A spice? Yeah. Well, well it's, a, it's an anesthetic. It, 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 they put it on, they put myrrh on the, on the um, sponge to give to Christ when he was on the cross. It's mentioned in the New Testament. So, yeah, it's an anesthetic. 
so it, 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 it's, it's medicinal, but it has another purpose. And frankincense, of course, is just incense, which was burned throughout the Roman world because people stank. Um, <laughs> look, if everybody smells bad, you light the potpourri, you know, you get it. <laughs> fan it around and hope it covers it up. Um, but there's a, there's a wonderful woman. I'm, gonna, uh, I, I'm so glad you raised the gifts, because the gifts are huge clues for us as to the origins of these wise men. There was only one place, one, in the entire Eastern world at the time, Middle East, where these three articles were not only produced, but that the kingdom controlled the trade routes, the spice routes. That would be the kingdom of Nabate, current day Petra. They had all the spice routes. Myrrh and frankincense are tree resin. They, 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 they are extracted from tree sap. Well, those trees only grow in Arabia. So <laughs> if you're from the Far East, you're from Africa, you don't have frankincense and myrrh. This is where they came from. They came from Petra modern-day Petra. The other thing that the kingdom controlled is the famous, infamous, gold mines of Solomon, also called the mines of Midian. They were the ones who controlled that gold. But there's an interesting other take here, and I found this in my research, and again, this is implied in the book. It is not set in stone. There are two theories of who these wise men, magi, may have been, and a magi is they're soothsayers, they're readers of dreams, they're astrologers, they are mathematicians, they are of a priestly caste, maybe Zoroastrian, which were the Eastern priests from Persia. The Zoroastrians were, they believed in a savior, by the way, that was to come. They were obsessed with lunar cycles, but so were the first temple Jewish priests, the so-called royal priesthood of Jerusalem the order of Melchizedek. You Catholics will remember that name. It's mentioned in the Mass uh, every week. Yep. The order of Melchizedek. Now, the members of the order of Melchizedek was that first temple priesthood. They were expelled. The first temple priests were expelled 700 years before Jesus. Where did they go? Arabia. In exile in Arabia very likely in Petra, and they became, their descendants became consuls and counselors to the king there, King Aratus, who appears in the book. So whether they were Zoroastrian priests or Jewish priests, I believe they had that pedigree because they would have been focused on both the lunar cycles and the, the uh, Jewish prophecies of a Messiah. The cool thing about the gifts, and I'll, I'm really condensing this, is a wonderful woman, Margaret Barker. I interviewed her. I'm doing a Fox Nation special, digging deep into all of this. So it's kind of a companion to this. So if you can't get enough, we'll give you the full story. <laughs> uh, Margaret Barker is an amazing woman who reads like 13 ancient and dead languages. Um, she is tr translating the Jordan Codexes, which are these lead books found a few years ago. She's translating them page by page. She's incredible. Margaret has a theory, and others share it, that these first temple priests, their descendants, are living in Petra. They are the wise men and the magi. They see the confirmation in the sky that a king is to be born in Judea. They go to their king and ask him to go see him. They take these gifts. Why the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh? The gold, Philo of Alexandria, first century, a contemporary of Christ, tells us, gold 
was in the royal vestments of the priesthood, that first temple priesthood. Frankincense was burned in the first temple. And most importantly, and this only happened in the first temple, second temple, it never happened. In the Holy of Holies, the most sacred spot in the first temple, a jar of myrrh was kept, oil. Why? To ordain and anoint new members of the royal priesthood. So, when these, let's just suggest, let's go down the path. When these guys, if they were indeed descendants of that first royal priesthood, holding the ancient ways, and men from the East in Hebrew translates also to men of the ancient times, interesting clue, um, if they are indeed members of that priestly caste of old Jewish royal priests, when they go to the Christ child, they are not just visiting him and dropping off gifts. They are completing a religious ritual and initiating the final royal priest into the royal priesthood, restoring the first temple. So when Jesus later says, I will destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again, he's the temple. It kind of brings the whole thing full circle, for me at least, and for many others. As we learn more about the Nabataeans, this first temple priesthood, it all fits really well. So it's a working theory. It's a good working theory, I think. How much, I mean, the Persians, Greeks, at the time of Christ, how much astral knowledge existed? Well, you're right to point out there were different schools of astral knowledge. Um, uh, the, I've come across evidence. The first temple, the roof of the first temple in Jerusalem had astrological charts on them. So they were very aware of the power of the skies and that there were messages there. Um, but there's the Greek school, there's the Babylonian school. Here's the neat thing about Nabate. Now, the kingdom of Nabate, because it was a trade center and they had incredible aqueducts, they could bring water out to the desert. That's why they could have a working city there. They were genius. Um, it was a trade center and like New Orleans, a melting pot. Anytime you have a port city, you get you have a, a very large Jewish population, but you have Greeks, you have Persians, you have all these other influences that are mixing and mingling in. So they probably had a pretty refined sense of these astrological events informed by separate schools of thought on them. But what they saw in the sky, that's another matter. Yeah, then I want to ask you on these astrological events. Yeah. So in reality, I mean, what was the star of Bethlehem? This, there are a thousand theories. Um, the one that I'm, I lean toward, I, I interviewed some astrologers, a Cambridge uh, scientist who was weighed in on this. One school is that it's Jupiter in the constellation of Aries. Uh, Jupiter being a kingly sign, Aries pointing to Judea. Okay, that, that's how they interpreted it. Okay, uh, another is that it was three separate astrological events. A cluster of planets, um, a comet at the end that led them to Bethlehem, and there are the timeline fits for some of these events. There were these big astrological events in 6 BC, 3 BC. Yes, there were things in the neighborhood. But as I say, what they saw is less important than the fact that they were looking, they were seeking. 
They were searching for something beyond what they had in front of them. And, the, and whatever it was, it convinced them that they had to get on horses and go see and find this child now. <laughs> and I, that kind of mad passion I loved. Because there's a multiple, there are multiple things going on here. And again, I only suggest this in the story. There's a heft of the political background in the story. But Herod was a killer. Herod was a murderous killer. What I didn't know is he had murdered, before our story starts, Herod had already murdered three of his sons and a wife to protect his throne. So when these three dudes show up on horseback with their gifts and say, hey, where's the new king of Judea? Herod's head explodes. He's looking for the knives. Where is he? Where's the kid? I'm the king. Where's the kid? Well, they don't know where he is. And that's why he has to call his priest and say, come here, come here. Where, where, where would this kid be born? And then he tells them what? Go and find the child. And when you find him, call me. I'll come worship him too. And the king of Nabate would fully understand the murderous intents of Herod. Herod's mother was a Nabatean princess, so they were kin. And more than that, I didn't know this, 30 years before the start of this story, Nabate is invaded by Herod. They're right next door to each other. So there was a lot of tension between these two kingdoms. So when the wise men come and tell the king, there's a new king being born in Judea, we think he's a messiah. He says, okay, fine, take some gifts to him. Go make Herod happy. Go, go be nice. We can mend fences here. So there's a political mission they're on, but there's a religious component underneath it for them. And I love the idea of that double, because that's how life is. It's never one thing. It's two or three things you're doing at the same time. It's never as pat as, oh, they followed the star. Star went out. Star goes out in the middle of the trip. So they had to have something more than the star. And then is there a, I, I think maybe you represented this pictorially, yeah. but so the light beams up from, oh yeah, the, up to the heavens. Yes, that's a little flourish of mine, I admit. <laughs> we all take little liberties. I did, there's a neat portion of the book where when they get to the house, they realize the light is not coming down from the star, but up from the house. Now, there's a little theological thing there. Mm. Benedict XVI wrote a beautiful book about the nativity. In the middle of it, he says, the star does not guide the child or direct the child. The child is directing the star. And I kind of liked that idea so much that we represent it in the picture. We kind of imply it other places, but it, in the illustration is very clear. But I love that idea. Um, and it, it's amazing how children pick up on the visuals. You know, they, they're seeing all the little things, the falcon and the horse and the way the star falls and the baby. They see all these little details that the adults miss. But what I love about picture books is you really can tell the story on multiple levels. I mean, it's really like a little movie that you control the pacing of. But you want to you wanna tell that story. There's a lot of language I pulled back. You know, I edited a lot out because Diane is such a beautiful um, illustrator that I, I said, well, you can tell this better. And she did. So all the description of Herod I threw out, because her Herod is so monstrous and fat and sloppy and horrible, I said, let's just leave her, let the picture do the talking. Um, yeah, look, I love him. Oh, he's such a big, he's a, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's not a happy guy. You don't want to go in front of Herod. Yeah. So it's, uh, but it's, it's, it's neat. It changes, it just changes our perception of a story we took for granted. And that's really what I try to do, no matter what I'm writing. You want to kind of shake up expectations. 
or broaden your thinking about a topic. I will never look at those three guys under the tree again the same way. <laughs> never. I want them all on horseback. I want to get the crowns taken off their heads. And I want at least nine more surrounding them. <laughs> I'm lobbying. I'm lobbying. <clears throat> there is likely one or two in our audience tonight, Raymond, who I want to write a children's book. I yeah. want to write a children's book. You know? Yes. What is your advice to those that believe they have it within them to write such a book to actually make it come true? You, you, you can do it. First of all, it depends on what, who are the children you're writing for? Because I've written middle grade, I'm writing, a, I still have a, a series at Random House I'm starting again. We've done three of them, I'm writing the fourth. Uh, the Will Wilder series, which is a middle grade, Harry Potter-esque, he's, he's my little adventurer. Uh, Will Wilder sees things others cannot. And on his 12th birthday, the shadows he's been seeing throughout childhood take crystallized form, and we realize he has a very important function in his family, and they've been waiting decades for this kid to arrive. Um, Will falls into all kinds of misadventures, um, but it's a, it's a fun series. But that, you're writing that for 8 to 14-year-olds. And, you know, I write for my older crowd, but that's primarily the audience. This is, this is geared to a younger audience, but I never played down to an audience, and that would be my big piece of advice. You don't write down to children. They're far from simple. Uh, they're far more complex than adults are. They see things and are sensitive to things, particularly the big things, the nature of good and evil, um, the, 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 the beautiful and ugly things at play in the world. Children are very sensitive to that. So you write from that level for them. But I think you have to make a good yarn. You have to spin a good yarn. You, the, the audience has no obligation to read your work, none. I don't assume they do. You have to hook them and hold them. Um, and I try to create a lot of uh, cliffhangers in the middle grade books because I've got to get boys to read and keep reading, and that's hard. Mm. Video games, watching my sons play video games helped me with that. Because those video games all have cliffhangers. If you want to move the story forward, you've got to play through a level, and then it stops, and the story continues. So I thought, well, I've got to kind of use that in a middle grade book and drop cliffhangers throughout so they keep reading, and you leave them hanging everywhere. So they constantly have to keep going <laughs> to figure out. Because everybody wants to know what happened. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> I, I think that sensitivity to kids um, is important. And, and um, the, the shape of it, again, this, this book, a picture book, makes certain demands on you. You have to underwrite, and each flip is a reveal. So sometimes you let the pictures do the talking, and you don't have to write as much. But so it's, it's an odd, this is a hard form, I have to tell you. This is harder than a, than a novel, mm. for me. This is far harder, because you're, you're collaborating with somebody, you're having to pull back, uh, you change the story sometime in the spider book when she spins the golden web on the front of the cave. We just did a whole spread for that. So we see her working through the night, you turn it, and wow, there it is, the whole golden spread with the spider in the middle. So you let the audience, it's a little bit like TV, you let the audience fill in the gaps. You don't have to tell them everything. They're smarter than you think. Bad TV and bad books try to scoop everything and feed you, force feed you. I never force feed. It's not worth it. You got to do your part. Why should I do all the work? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Uh, I want to fast forward okay. to the present day, but before I because I have some people here are fascinated with you, and I have some questions about you. I have some questions about them. <laughs> <laughs> so before I leap there, mm -hmm. is there anything else you'd like to say about this really? Only that the, the whole reason I wrote this story in this way was because I hope when it's over, if we can ground these figures we've taken for granted in reality, and I really wanted to rescue them from fable. They were lost in fable. The names, the three names, Mel Melchior, Balthazar, Casper, the traditional names of these wise men. I kept those names because they're so familiar, but um, they were created in the sixth or seventh century by Venerable Bede. He just created those names. The names, by the way, just mean king in different languages. Uh, Melchior is Hebrew, uh, Kaiser, Kasper, Kaiser is German. Um, the other is a dead Semitic language for Balthazar. But they all mean God with the king, uh, the, the king is protected, and something else about the king. But they're just represented for king. Now, they may, have, they may have said they were kings because they were members of the royal priesthood, the high priesthood, which makes more sense to me than they were kings. And uh, so I wanted to rescue them from that, and in the doing, I hope, not only do the wise men find Christmas, but we refind it in a, situated in a reality not unlike our own, a political reality where strife and death surrounds us, and a hopeful reality where light does not disappear forever. And I thought if I could capture that some way through a story, through a real adventure, that it would, it would pull people in and draw them to this story and hopefully enrich and deepen a, a big part of our Christmas celebrations, the, mm -hmm. the wise men. And for New Orleanian, you know, in New Orleans, the Feast of the Epiphany is mm -hmm. the beginning of the carnival season. That's when we break out the king cakes, thus king cake. And that runs from the, the January 6th. See, I'm trying to redeem January 6th. <laughs> no more hearings, wise men. Wise men. Okay. Maybe that's my real motivation. I would like to ask uh -oh. our audience to see oh. if you've got any questions. Mass for interrogation. He's not here that often, so I, I, I definitely want to do that for several okay. minutes. Uh, we are over here in the front. It's just a little comment and okay. maybe something for you to use because I'm sure you're on a California book tour. Uh, well, a little mini California okay. book tour. Okay, you talked about the king and how smart he was with the aqueduct through the desert. Yes. And I thought maybe you could <laughs> relate that to Gavin, and maybe he could get some information about that. <laughs> now that, that is the most helpful suggestion yet. I'm going to go do a book signing at Newsom's house. <laughs> yeah, all about aqueducts. All about aqueducts. They did find a way to get water into the desert continuously, but I, I'm sorry, you got the 405 and the, I, the 10, and <laughs> getting the aqueducts over, it could be a problem. Okay, we know about television, radio, and writing. Yes. What do you love? What do I love? What do you mean? Which? Bring the microphone. Is back. there a preference? No, I, I mean, I, I actually, the truth of the matter is, I mean, because of my, my, my foundations, I love the theater. I love live performance. If I could, I'd just do this. I'd just do live crowds. I, I, but, you know, it's one handles the other. You need to, you need to, you know, 
TV is how you reach people. So I enjoy it, but it is a grind. And I do, you know, the one thing, now you all are going to be, some of you are going to wrinkle your nose when I say this. I'm going to compliment Barbara Streisand. Don't leave. <laughs> Don't leave. Barbara Streisand has done something brilliantly. She comes out with one project a year, and like groundhogs, she hides all year round, pops up once a year, and goes away. There's mystery around Barbara Streisand. She doesn't overexpose herself and therefore wear out her welcome. And that's why when you ask me, well, Joe, you should do a show a week. You should do three shows a week. You should do four. Uh, you, you, you know, you can tire people out. And I don't want to ever overstay my welcome. You've got to know when to leave. I love informing people. I love entertaining people, whether it's through books or in person. Um, and, and I feel called to do that. But we can't, you know, Angela Lansbury, whom I knew a little bit, uh, just died. And there was a great quote and she said, there is such joy to be found bringing humor and light to an audience. Believe me, she said, and I do. She's right. There is great joy there uh, in that mutual giving. And that's a rare thing in life, to be able to touch many people and lift them and give them something to laugh about or unburden their load for a little bit and inform them about important things. And when you can do that at the same time, it's more powerful. Because if I can get you laughing, I can teach you and share a lot of what I've learned. And you don't, you're not as, you're not, there's no blockade left. You're very open. And that's part of what I do too. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. <clears throat> giving away my, like <clears throat> David Copperfield showing you how the tricks are done. Sorry. <clears throat> but thank you. We have time for just about two more questions. I have something special to share with you, Uh oh. Raymond. Thank you for coming tonight. Um, two weeks ago on your World Over on EWTN, mm -hmm. you highlighted a group of Carmelite sisters oh, yeah. who were recording a CD in St. Joseph's Chapel. Yes. I live a block from St. Joseph's Chapel. In, in Alhambra? Duarte. Yeah, they're in Alhambra, but they also, uh, well, they had a hospital for ah, many years, which basically okay. closed, and now it only serves the elderly. Hmm. Um, but the nuns, we have a walking trail, equestrian trail, that starts at Santa Teresita. That's where they are, Santa Teresita, oh. the St. Joseph Chapel, and the nuns take their walks. Oh, I thought uh, you were going to tell me they ride Arabian horses. I was suddenly <laughs> off to okay. find out. But that's where I walk my dog. And uh, for the last 40 years, I've run into the sisters walking They're dear along nuns. there. But yeah, I'm familiar with that chapel. And when I saw them on TV, I thought, oh, See this that. is awesome. They're great. Thank you so, so much, Raymond. It's just Thank been an you, honor Sean. and a privilege to have you. And we're just so pleased to have you back at the mm. Reagan Library. Well, Thank I you. love being here. Thank you. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you. The honor is mine. My thanks to John Highbush and all the folks at the Reagan Library for their hospitality, their kindness, and, of course, to all the great people who came out. The Wiseman Who Found Christmas is now available in bookstores everywhere online. My book tour rolls on with three stops remaining. I'll be at the Barnes & Noble in Brentwood, Tennessee, on Saturday, December 3rd, near Nashville. And on Saturday, December 10th, 
I'll be in Washington, D.C. at the Museum of the Bible. Then on the 16th, I'm going to New Jersey. Go to RaymondArroyo.com for all the details. And of course, you can always order the book from the EWTN catalog. He's a two-time college football national champion. He won the Heisman Trophy in 2007 while playing for the University of Florida. He's also been a first-round NFL draft pick, ESPN contributor, a former professional baseball player. What hasn't he done? Well, five-time New York Times bestseller books. Uh, and he joins us tonight with an inspirational new book, Mission Possible, one-year devotional. Please welcome Tim Tebow to the program. Tim, thanks for being here. In a recent Instagram post, you admit to being a people pleaser and that you had to change your mindset from pleasing people to earning their respect to grow yeah. closer to God and bring others closer to him. And you attribute this quote by Winston Churchill with helping you see the need for change. If you have enemies, good. It means you stood for something at least once in your life. How did that quote change you and how you go about bringing others closer to God? Wow, Raymond, that's a, a good question. You did some research in your homework. So um, I, I, by you nature, bet. I am such a people pleaser, man. I wanted to, I want to be friends. I would want people to like me. I still want people to like me. It's my nature. I, I'm just not someone that um, easily, I, I'm not bold like my dad is naturally. And so I, I just especially remember mm -hmm. getting to college and on that kind of next level, that platform of of scrutiny and um, and fame somewhat, but just you have all these people, and I just remember getting scrutinized on another level, and I just remember going home and saying to Dad, like, Dad, man, if if they if these people would get to know me, Dad, I think they would like mm -hmm. me, and and I just remember my dad looks at me and he said, Timmy, they probably would if they really got to know you because you are likable, but unfortunately, mm -hmm. Timmy, some people. They won't even want to take the time to get to know you, and they don't want to actually like you. And it was at a time when I was also reading uh, about Winston Churchill, and that's where I, I, I saw that quote, and I was impacted by it yeah. because I was thinking, how in the world, Raymond, could it be good to have enemies? Like, don't we want to try to be friends with everyone? And And it was kind of understanding the difference between being friends, being friendly, being liked versus being mm -hmm. respected. And what I would come to kind of understand about Winston Churchill is because he stood for something, a lot of people didn't like him because they couldn't see what he saw. They didn't believe what he believed. And even the Allies thought he was going to lose the war for the Allies. And if you're on the other side, you hated him because he was your enemy. But right. but they didn't understand it. But one day they came to respect him for it. And now we, we talk about Winston Churchill and, and most people are like, wow, you know, it's incredible what he's done, what he stood for, all of his writings, all his beliefs. And, and it was because he was willing to stand for something when a lot of other people um, weren't willing to. I was also, um, you know, in that time studying the scriptures and reading John 16, 33, which is one of my favorite verses. And it's Jesus talking to his disciples the night before he goes to the cross. And he looks at them, and he says, for in me, you have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome mm -hmm. the world. And, and it was something that was really impactful to me at that same time. It was saying, oh my gosh, like really what I was looking for was peace in relationships because I'm a people pleaser when I need to be looking for peace in my relationship with Christ. 
and that it will have trial and tribulations. And that doesn't mean we're not trying to be friends or friendly and, and love everyone. It just means that's not right. where we find our peace. We find it in him. And, um, and, and that was a big transition for me of, of still trying to love people, but more so instead of trying to earn likes, it was earn respect. Tim, you were born in the Philippines to missionary parents. How did they inspire you to want to share your faith? Because they're my biggest role models. Um, my mom being someone who is very rarely ever growing up that I hear her say a bad word about anyone. And she would always tell us um, what is desirable in a man is his kindness. Um, going back to scripture and then and uh, she would sing to us and sing verses to us. And that just made a massive impact. And my dad probably being my greatest hero because not what he he said to us, but what he showed us in his life of giving the majority of his adult life to helping people that could never help him and and never do anything for him. And then his courage and his conviction and his urgency to do it, to get to as many hurting people, to help as many people as possible, to take the hard steps, to to be able to go places very few would go, to um, you know, be able to um, you know, it's how we, it's how I got involved also in the, the fight against human trafficking is to be able to, you know, my, my dad in an underground pastor's conference in remote country bought four girls that were being auctioned off to be able to, to buy them, to set them free, right? Like that's the, mm. the hero that my dad has been to me. And to be able to see that, that love isn't just a feeling and it's not just, a, um, uh, it's not just, you know, these butterflies we get, but the greatest form of love is a choice to choose the best interest of another person and act on their behalf. It's what Jesus did for us. It's what I've seen my dad do for so many people. It's what too many times I've failed at, but I want to get better, that I want to choose people's best interests and act on their behalf. And that's why he's my hero. Tim, you attribute your life's purpose to when you were a 15-year-old boy in the jungle of the Philippines. And tell me what happened, who you met there that changed your life. I met a young boy named Sherwin who was born with his feet on backwards. And because he was born that way, his village viewed him as cursed, as less than, as insignificant. Mm. And he was treated as a throwaway. Um, but I fell in love with that boy, and I knew... Um, that he wasn't a throwaway to God. And I so felt on my heart that God was pricking my heart to say, he better not be a throwaway to you, Timmy, because he's not a throwaway to me. And I knew that day that I love sports. I love competing. I love trying to be the best I could be. But it's not what I was supposed to do with my life. What I was supposed to do with my life was to fight for boys and girls around the world yeah. like him that are being viewed as less than because they're not to God. And I know that they better not be to me. And there are so many people yeah. around the world that still to this day, as we are having this conversation, still viewed as less than, as insignificant. And there are throwaways. And we have to do a better job of getting to every single one of them because they have great worth. They have great value to God and they better have it to us. Tim, in 2010, you created the Tim Tebow Foundation, which uh, focuses on really several ministries, people with special needs, orphan care, uh, children with profound medical needs, human trafficking victims, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, you're about to build a camp for children in the Poconos, 3,000 acres of land. What inspired you to start the foundation, and, and where is it now? Where do you see it going? 
Well, the the foundation was really inspired by that boy in the Philippines. And when I graduated from Florida, mm -hmm. it's one of the first things we did. Um, and I wrote the mission statement to bring faith, hope, and love to those needing a brighter day in their darkest hour of need. And I wrote that literally just thinking about Sherwin, where he was in his life and what he needed is he was in the darkest hour of need and he needed people to love him enough to bring faith, hope, and love to him, to his situation. And that is our heart. That is our heart's cry to get to as many places mm -hmm. as we can around the world. We're so grateful that God has opened doors for us to now be in over 70 countries around the world. Um, but we have to get farther into all those countries, into more countries to get to every single hurting person. And, and what you're referring to with, with Rising Light Ridge is the, the camp in the Poconos that we have um, already serving kids, but we're still, we broke ground and we're building the camp out. But while we're building it, we're still serving in the meantime. And, and really that camp is called Rising Light Ridge. And it is a place where we want everybody to find belonging. We want everybody to be loved, to be served, to be cared for, to know their worth and their value. That's why we call it a place of belongings, because everybody belongs in the family of God. And we want to be able to share that. And we want people to know that. And, mm. and we want to be able to serve people with special needs. We want to be able to serve people who haven't had the chances before. We want to be able to serve people um, who, who come from um, from harder areas, from don't have as many opportunities. We want to be able to serve people who have been in one of the greatest evils in the world and, and, um, and, and trapped in that the terrible place of human trafficking. We want to be able to serve all these people. So um, that is our heart. Uh, the, the land was was given to us, and now it is it, it is our heart to be able to give it to those that, that are hurting so that they can find joy, they can find hope, they can mm. find peace, and they can find restoration. Tim, before we run out of time, I have to get to your new book, uh, Mission Possible, One-Year Devotional. Uh, in a recent video you posted on social media, you asked people if they're committed to reading the Bible as they are to drinking a cup of coffee each morning. And you point out that it takes just that time, the time it takes to brew a coffee, you could read several reflections in your book. What do you find are the biggest obstacles keeping people from making that commitment each day? I think it's our mindset. I think it's the consistency. I think it's all the things that are thrown at us every day. I mean, Raymond, let's just be honest. How many Mondays have I woke up in my life and I've got caught up in all the different things that have been thrown at me, the busyness of life, the um, the clutter of life, the things I feel like I got to get to. And um, you, even though I'm someone that... I, I've, I've been taught the truth and I know it. I still let things get in the way. And so it's encouraging people. Yeah. Let's not let things get in the way. Let's start with the, a mission mindset. Let's get into God's word. And that's why every day we start with um, with portions of scripture and then we try to make it practical. And then we try to encourage them along the way. Um, but, but just for two to five minutes, if we could just start our day you know, in God's word and then also with encouraging stories, well, we can frame our mindset to be prepared for that day because in that day, we can get caught up in so many distractions, and that's been true in my life so many days. I've just been caught up with all the things I have to do rather than starting it with the right framework, with the right mindset in God's Word, with the right encouragement, and the right challenges as well. Is that something we also want to challenge people, you know, to, to get uncomfortable, to give a little little bit more, to care a little bit more, to pray a little bit more, to serve a little bit more. And then we also really, really, really want to encourage people because Raymond, we all know this life can be hard. It can have disappointments. It can have pain. It can have frustrations. And so we want to be able to encourage people. You know what encouragement means? It means to give support, confidence, or hope to. And when people pick this up, mm. I, I hope and I pray that they, they feel supported in God's word and God's promises yeah. and God's love.
for them. I, I hope that they have hope and, and I hope that they have confidence and mm-hmm. And, and who they were created to be and how much God loves them and how he has a special, special plan and purpose Thank for their you. life. And Tim, we should tell people uh, th- there's usually a Bible quote, uh, a reflection. And of course, then it's some of your insights, sometimes using sports analogies or things that happened in your life. And then usually a series of questions to kind of jumpstart the day. Why did you decide to, to use that form to create this well, devotion? Because I think it's a lot of different ways that we can learn from and be impacted. I think sometimes um, when we give people thoughts on reflections, um, first of all, it's always important to start with Scripture because that's God's Word. It's His promises. It's His love letter to us. Mm -hmm. and It's always the right place to start. And then, you know, coming up with some different thought-provoking questions. And and I even, um, in 31 of these devotionals, um, they're, they're written by other people that are heroes of mine, that some of them are parents who have lost their children to... To diseases. Some of them are kids with life-threatening illnesses. One of them is a survivor of human trafficking, and I wanted the world to be able to hear some of their story because I also think that, that they're just inspirations to me, and I think they'll be inspirations to so many people, but it's also how in those tough situations, how God has used their pain um, to turn it into purpose, and how God has used their pain because they've given it to Him to, to use it for good, and how all of us have gone through hard times, but, but our God is a big God that is also sovereign that can use all of those things um, together um, for good to those that love him. Okay, Tim, I've saved the most difficult question for last. You titled this devotional after your book, Mission Possible, which was about creating a life that counts. Um, Tell us, before we run out of time, how do you discern what God is calling you and what your mission in life is? How does one figure that out? That's really good. Well, first, I think it starts by knowing that you have one, knowing that you were created on purpose for a purpose. It's understanding that God of this universe really does have a purpose for all of us. What does even purpose mean? The reason we were created, the reason we exist. You could also say mission, a task or a job someone has been given to do. That's why we titled it Mission Possible. What is possible means? It means to be able. And I believe every single one of us has a purpose and a mission, and we are able to accomplish it. How do we know that? What? How, how do we know what it is? Well, I think in the macro, we all have the same. And it's to love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But in the micro, I think we all have different ones. How do we live that out? Well, that's really hard. You're going to see a lot of different people talk about it to try to figure out, try to understand it. But I want to encourage people to look at it this way. What have your eyes been opened to and what has your heart been pricked for? And and in those moments in your life, we talked about when I had the chance to meet Sherwin, right? That day, my eyes were open to something I hadn't seen and my heart was pricked to do something about it. When we have those moments, when we have those chances, let's step into it. Even if we get uncomfortable, even if we're not sure, even if we don't have all the answers, that's okay. Let's dive into it because even whether that is your, your, your in purpose or not, I also believe that it can help lead you to wherever we're supposed to go next. But I would also encourage people, you know, God can do anything that he wants. But I don't usually see a lot of people that their life's getting impacted just by watching, you know, two, three, four seasons of the latest Netflix shows or just scrolling. (laughs) And so why God can use that to impact people, I don't see it a lot. But I do see when people are willing to step outside of their comfort zone a little bit. 
and to, to care, to serve, to help in places, how he can use that so much in our life to, to grow us, to let us see the next thing we're supposed to do. And he can use Netflix, but man, I don't know that I, I, I see him doing that with a lot of people. And, you know, maybe if we just put that down a little bit and, and, and I'm guilty of it too. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's fun for me and my wife to watch our favorite show, but every now and then we just, we just need to put it down and see, okay, hey, maybe what's the next greatest way we can go serve? Well, I I love that you're encouraging people to be spiritually watchful. You know, I I just wrote a book on the wise men, and they were watching. They were looking beyond their earthly experience to something else and then to act on that. And that's really what this devotional is about. Mission Possible, one-year devotional, 365 days of inspiration for pursuing your God-given purpose by Tim Tebow is available at bookstores everywhere and online. Tim, thank you so much for being here. We'll do this in person sometime soon. I love it. Raymond, thanks for all the the research and the questions. Man, you did your homework. I love it. That was fun, man. Well, thank my producer, too. We We try to respect our guests enough to raise the bar. So thank you, Tim. I love it. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Before we go, I want to thank all of you for your devotion to this show for the past 26 years. As I always say, we do this show each week for you and with you, always in our minds and our hearts. You are really our editorial guide uh, as each week passes. I'm thankful to my producers, Christina Califf, and of course, Christopher Edwards, who's been with me for so long for all their hard work. I'm also grateful for the crew you don't see, operations manager and editor, Jonathan Watley, our director, Eric Baldwin, Jay Chippock, our engineer, and countless others. I'm particularly thankful personally to my family, especially my wife, Rebecca, 28 amazing years, and for being so supportive of all my work. I'm blessed to be able to get together with my mom and dad and the whole family this holiday season. I hope you're able to do the same. And as always, our prayers go out to those men and women in the armed services and our veterans away from their families and those who are less fortunate who are alone. Reach out to them this Thanksgiving and into the Advent season. It's the perfect time of year to do so and a beautiful sign of gratitude for the many blessings you and I get every day. Happy Thanksgiving to you all. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. I have a new exclusive interview with Mark Wahlberg. A whole new version of his father, Stu, is returning to theaters. Why? We'll tell you. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.